Let's see how we can do with some nursery rhymes from, from childhood. Some of you might remember this one. This is the church. This is the... Open the doors. See all the people. See all the people. I don't know. When I was, when I was a kid, um, I, I just remember doing this. Like... It didn't make sense to me. Any, any of you with me? Any of you still can't figure that out? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. It's, uh, on one hand, the church really is that simple. It's something that, that can and should be easily explained to, to children, to, to anyone. But I remember hearing that nursery rhyme as a child doing something with my hands and just being confused. How can I make my fingers really look like a, a door. Where are, are the people? These are just fingers. What, what's a steeple? What's a steeple? And, and what happens when church doesn't fit in a nice box? What do, we, what do we do then? What happens when it can't be explained by a, a simple nursery rhyme? This fall... We're exploring the book of Acts as a congregation and asking what it looks like to be a, a church in a, in a world that church doesn't fit in a nice, neat box. What, what does it mean to be the church in a world that is constantly in flux, in a world that is constantly changing? Well, one of my, my favorite uh, sociologists of religion, she, she has this, this deep belief that every 500 years, the church goes through a, a massive shift a massive shift where the church begins questioning, well, who has authority to make decisions in the church? So if you go 500 years ago from today, you get to what? Let's see how we are with, with church history. The Reformation. The Reformation. You go 500 years before the Reformation, you get to, this was a little bit harder, the Great Schism. Where the Eastern Church believed one thing, the Western Church believed one thing, and, and they kind of said, well, well, we follow this leader and we follow this leader. What do we do? 500 years before that, you get the monastic movement where, where, the, where the church is saying, well, who has authority? Well, the monks have authority because the monks have all the books. They've been studying it. The monks are the ones who, who have authority. The monks are the ones who can make decisions for the church. And if you go 500 years before the monastic movement, you get to the Acts Church. Where the church is trying to figure out, well, what does this look like? This sociologist, her name is, is Phyllis Tickle. She believes that we're in the middle of one of those times right now where, where the church as a whole is kind of deconstructing what we believe and, and trying to put that back together and to say, well, who, who has authority in the church? How do we, how do we move forward together as a community? Uh, this morning we are in, in Acts chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles, I, I invite you to open them, to turn there. The words will be on the screen as well. You can also pull out the Bible in your pew if you'd like. Um, let's pray. Holy God, we, we thank you for your scriptures and for the opportunity that we have to open them together. Lord, we, we thank you for the opportunity to be in a community, to be in a church, to figure out what it means to be your followers in, in today's world. Lord, we ask that you give us ears to hear what you have for us. And, and God, I ask that you would take my words and use them for your kingdom. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. 
So Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 1, it begins with, with Peter and John standing uh, in what, what kind of would have been the, the courtyard of the temple, if you will, in Jerusalem. And, and, and Peter and John had just walked through one of the city gates near the temple, and as they passed through the, the gate, they were met by a crippled man who was begging as the crowds walked by. And Peter says, you know, I don't, I don't have any, any money to give you, but in the name of, of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Get up, get up and walk. The man is healed, and he, he of course, just says, well, what just happened? What, what, what do I, and, and he follows after Peter and John, kind of clinging to Peter and John, and says, what, what, what just happened? And crowds, they begin to gather around Peter and John, and, and Peter preaches a message that sounds very similar to what he had preached right after Pentecost. The religious elite are there in the temple, and they, they can't believe what they are hearing. Now, they, they assumed, the religious elite assumed that, that you know, Jesus was, was crucified. Wouldn't his followers kind of quiet down now? Wouldn't, wouldn't they just kind of, kind of go away continue on with their lives without being such a nuisance. But after Pentecost, as we've read in, in the first part of Acts, the number of people who claimed to follow Jesus just grew exponentially. It just grew and grew and grew. And now that disruption had arrived at the temple. So they have Peter and John arrested. They're taken into custody and eventually to the council of the high priest. And, and Peter says, look, if we're here because I healed someone... If we're here because I did a good deed, because I healed someone, let's, let's get things straight. I did it because of Jesus. I did all of this because, because of Jesus. And then the council says, oh, those guys look familiar. They hung out with Jesus. It's Peter and John. And they tell them to stop talking about Jesus and to stop disturbing the peace. And they essentially respond with, well, you can threaten us all you want, but we can't stop. We won't stop. We need to share all that we've seen, all that we've experienced, and it's, it's going to continue. Then starting at verse 23, we read this. After they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them, it is you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against the Messiah, his Messiah. For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your place had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with Boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was 15 years old, my life revolved around one thing. I know you're probably sitting there thinking, well, it was girls. It wasn't girls. It was, it was surfing. 
My life was all revolved around one thing, going to the beach. It was, it was surfing. The only way my parents would get me to church in the morning is by promising me that they would take me to surf before church. So I was the kid who sat in the back, in the back and, and, and just had salt water gushing from my nose during church, kind of maybe where, where JR is sitting, sitting over here. During summertime, I would be at the church every day. And, and during this, at the church, just making sure you're paying attention. I'd be at the beach every day during the summer. And, and during the school year, I'd sit in the back of the classroom with my friends. We'd open up Surfer Magazine, and we'd dream of traveling to the places that we, we saw. We'd draw waves. We, would, we, would just, we were obsessed with surfing. One of the friends that I, I spent a lot of time at the beach, at, at the beach with in the summer and, and sitting in the back of the classroom was a buddy of mine named Juan. He's still a good friend of mine today. He's actually a church choir director down in San Diego. Um, he has a family. He has family who lives up and down the coast of, of Baja, California, and Mexico. And his dad, who was an Episcopalian priest, said, I'll take you. I'll, I'll take you. Let's go. You know those trips that you've been dreaming on? You're, let's go. Let's, let's have a, a trip. Let's go. And so he promised to take us to a place called Shipwrecks. Now, Shipwrecks is down, down the coast of Baja, California, quite, quite a ways. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful place. We had seen pictures in the magazines. We had heard stories of how good the waves were there and, and how uncrowded it was. But we also knew that it was kind of this, this, I won't say a myth, but it was this place that we had seen pictures, but nobody could find it. It was, it was kind of off the map. You had to journey to find it. You had to go on an adventure to find it. So we piled into his dad's VW Westphalia, and, and, and we crossed the border, and we started driving. And within two hours, of course, it's a VW, it broke down. The van broke down. We got on a bus. I put my surfboards on the bottom of the bus with some chickens. We took the, we took the bus a little bit farther until we reached his cousin's house where we picked up a truck. But the truck only had three seats, right? It was just a, a, a regular truck, and there were four of us. So Juan and his brother Sander and his dad, Father Juan, and I had to figure out how we were going to all fit in the truck. So one of us was always in the bed of the truck, holding on to the surfboards as we drove down, looking for shipwrecks. One day, while well, it was, was my turn to sit in the back, we were on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere, and we, we came over the hill, and the hills really do look like that. They're just, they're just these massive hills with kind of roads, and we, we, we came over a dirt road in the middle of nowhere, and we hadn't seen another car for about an hour or so, and we pulled up to four or five cars, Federales. I looked over my shoulder and, and saw a bunch of men holding guns in the distance, waving us to come down the hill toward them. I looked over my shoulder again, and, and Father Juan was having his boys roll up the windows inside the cab, and I was in the back of the truck. I had heard stories about surfers in Baja being kidnapped by local authorities. And the only reason my parents let me go in the first place was because I was going with a Mexican Episcopalian priest. They figured I would be okay. Juan's dad pulled up to the Federales, cracked the window, said a few words in Spanish. I held my breath, and then we were on our way. At some point, I'm sure I prayed one of those prayers where, where you make a deal with God. 
Lord, if you just, if you just get us out of this, I will spend every day of the summer at church. Those prayers are dangerous prayers, by the way. It was a close call. My heart was racing. I remember sitting in that bed of that truck, absolutely terrified, so anxious that I, I couldn't think rationally, that I couldn't focus my attention. It's what I imagine Peter and John felt as they, they stood in front of the council, not, not really knowing what was going to happen. They didn't know how the, the chief priests would respond. They, they didn't know if they'd be thrown in jail or, or even worse. And they, they, they knew what had just happened to Jesus. And yet, instead of responding to the outrage of the council, to the, the anxiety of the situation, they respond with a, a clear commitment to bold prayer and action. Now, in, in today's world, whether it's, it's work or family life or, or the political landscape that we find ourselves in, it seems that everywhere we turn has the potential to be a bit of a pressure cooker, right? Just everywhere, there's anxiety everywhere we look in, in today's world. Our world is, is always on the edge. And as a church, as a body of people who claim to follow Jesus, we're called to have a response to the anxieties of our age. Peter and John give us an example of how that response should look. They're released from the authorities and they, they run to the rest of the folks in the Acts community. And we're told that when the early church hears their report, that they raise their voices together in bold prayer. That they come together as a church community and pray. The church wasn't defensive in their response. They didn't respond in fear. They didn't lash out against the religious authorities. But they also didn't just play it safe. They didn't, they didn't go into hiding for a while. Instead, they, they came together and they prayed together. They had to expect that there would be pushback to what they were doing. They, they, they knew they, they needed to be able to lean on one another in the middle of the tension. In the same way as a church, we, we need to be able to lean on one another in, in the tension that exists in our world today. The truth is, any time one of us feels called by God to do something, whether it's to serve in some capacity here at the church, whether it's, it's to do something outside of the church, whether it's to move across the country, any time any of us feels called to do anything, have that kind of deep conviction that God has called us, we need to seek confirmation within the community of faith. One of the reasons I think Peter and John were able to be as calm as they were was because they knew that there was a group, the early church, that had their back. Who is that group for you? Who is the group of people that has your back? Those who pray boldly with you. It might be a, a small group here at WPC or, or it might be a, a small group elsewhere. People who know you so well that they can pray boldly with you. My wife Haley and I were in a, a small group about 10 years ago, and it was a small group where, where the youngest in our group was 17 and the oldest in our group was 70, and we only were together for 10 months, yet weekly we get emails from someone in that group. How can we be praying for each other this week? 
10 years ago. That's our group who boldly prays together with us. My hope is that we'd aim to be a church where, where those sorts of relationships, those sorts of friendships are constantly built, constantly fostered. When their, their prayer begins, they're, they're specific with their words. They acknowledge that God is sovereign. Uh, one of my, my favorite opening scenes of all time, of any movie, comes from, from Forrest Gump. You, 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 can, you, can, you can maybe picture it, right? The feathers floating around. Has anybody seen it with me? The, the, you know, the, 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 feather, the feather's floating around. The, the bus pulls up to the bus stop. Forrest is sitting there with his box of chocolates. A nurse walks up. The nurse sits down. Forrest introduces himself, offers her some chocolate, and shares a couple quotes from his mom. You know this one. Mama always said life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And then he looks down at the nurse's shoes and he gives another gem from Mama. Mama always said that there's an lot, awful lot you can tell by a person's shoes. Where they're going. Where they've been. Thank you, Kathy. Well, in the same way that you can tell a lot about a person, by their shoes, you can learn a lot about a faith community by listening to the words they use when they pray, how they start their prayer. And the early community starts, Lord, you indeed are the God. You are sovereign. You made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, now the Greek word that's used here in, in Acts by Luke is, is different from the Lord that we read elsewhere in the New Testament. It's a, it's a different Greek word. We, we can't quite say that it's a stronger word, but it, it carries a connotation of, of absoluteness, of kind of finality. So they start their prayer by saying, Lord, you're in charge of all things and all that we do all that we will ever do is out of response to you being in charge and us being your servants. They couldn't do anything without their Lord. And everything they did was a response to being a servant of that Lord. The prayer continues. And it continues by, by recognizing that threats exist. They've always been there. They, they always will be. They acknowledged that what Peter and John had just experienced wasn't necessarily anything new. As they pray, they, they, they quote King David. They quote Psalm 2. There was something comforting for the early church about recognizing that they were in good company. That, that when God's people try to stay faithful to what God has for them, they typically face some sort of trouble. I think... Uh, th this sort of reminder is important for us, uh, us in the church today, whether we want to call it spiritual warfare or whether we want to call it some, something else. Today's church typically typically falls into one of, of, of two categories, one of two places. Uh, it's a church that talks about spiritual warfare all the time. So we talk about the decline in, in what we would claim to be traditional Christian values. Or, or the decline in the use of, of certain words around holidays, spiritual warfare. So that's one, one, one camp. And then the other camp, we don't talk about it at all. 
Spiritual warfare is scary. It's uncomfortable. It can't be proven or explained, so we, we shouldn't talk about it. But Scripture is pretty clear. If we follow after what God has for us, if we are really doing our best to be obedient to following God's will, we're going to face challenges. We're going to face threats. Whatever you want to call them, they're going to happen. We can't ignore that they exist. The early church doesn't ignore that they exist. And yet, in the middle of those threats, they acknowledge that God moves in mysterious ways. So as they pray, the early church turns toward Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, and they remind themselves that God took what looked like a massive defeat and turned it into a victory. It doesn't make sense. It's mysterious. But the truth is that, that God took something evil in Jesus' death and created something beautiful in His resurrection. And it gave them courage to face whatever was thrown at them. The reminder for us here is that God doesn't waste anything. That God is always at work no matter where we find ourselves. We might not be able to understand what God's up to, but, but God is always, always, always on the move. And as the church concludes their, their bold prayer, they ask God to confirm their actions, to, to confirm their witness by continuing to act in mighty ways, to pair their human words with divine action. They expected God to show up in their preaching and in their programs. And we get the feeling that if God didn't show up in their life together, they'd change all that they were doing to make sure that God was in the middle of it all. So the, the prayer that the early church prays it, it invites us to, to kind of evaluate our own prayer life together. Are we united as a community as we pray? Do we have those groups of people that we can turn to to pray boldly with us? Do we recognize that God is sovereign and still in control even in the midst of our anxious world? Do we? Do our, do our prayers reflect the reality that God moves in mysterious ways even when we can't make sense of it all? And do we expect God to show up, to act, as we share, as we pray, human words? The early church, they finish their prayer, and the, the room that they're in, we're told, shakes. And they know that God is on the move in their midst. Now, we might not get or experience that, that same sort of confirmation in our prayer life, but, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray just as boldly as the early church prayed. So this week, I want to invite us all together to set aside time to pray every single day. It might be in the morning for you. It might be in the nighttime for you. But, but set aside some time to pray. Let's, let's take the, the kind of scary step of asking God to move in mysterious ways in our anxious times. Even in the midst of our challenges, even in the midst of, of the threats that we face. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Remind us that you're just as in control. You're in just as much control today as you were during the time of David. 
and as you were during the time of the early church. And God, remind us that you are still moving. Lord, help us to be a church that prays boldly and expectantly, seeking after your will for our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen.